Tony McAleer. He is a former white supremacist. Skinhead. He's a former organizer for the White Aryan Resistance, otherwise known as WAR, and uh, served as a skinhead recruiter and proprietor of Canadian Liberty Net, computer-operated voice messaging center, and manager of the racist rock band Odin's Law. And every, you know, every time I, I say that, I, I'm like, what? Like, it just doesn't register in my brain that this stuff goes on, has gone on in Tony's life. It's such a foreign concept for me that there's such a thing as a racist rock band. What? Well, there's Christian rock bands. I'm sure there's, you know, racist rock bands. Really? Really? That's your comparison there? <laughs> Sometimes they're sort of the same. Tony was eventually found to have uh, contravened Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act that prohibits the dissemination of messages likely to expose groups to hatred by telephone. Tony, I actually want to get you right on the line right now and ask you to clarify that whole scenario, if you don't mind. So you were eventually found to have contravened Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act that prohibits the dissemination of messages likely to expose groups to hatred by telephone. What the heck happened? Uh, I had a, um, a computer-operated voicemail system. So there was other hate lines at the time and before me that were sort of your single-line answering machine like you'd have at home. And uh, I think it was back in 1990, I purchased a card from the United States called Big Mouth. Uh, appropriately called, put it in my computer, plugged the phone jack in the back, and it allowed me to have a whole menu of messages. Press one for this, press two for that, press three, you know, for international organizations. And I invited organizations from around the planet to record messages so people could listen to them. And we also wrote many of our own messages um, to cast doubt upon the Holocaust and get people to query... Um, you know the what we thought the the Jews were up to. So wow, wow. Uh, well, I want to tell everyone about lifeafterhate.org. Lifeafterhate.org. Uh, Tony is a co-founder of Life After Hate, and and uh, the reason obviously Tony's on the show today is is because of his journey uh, throughout this whole. I don't know how many years were you a hater for, Tony? Fifteen. And the the thing that got you into it was. What, just, you know, teenage angst? What was it? Yeah, I mean, you know, what went on in my household, you know, I walked in on my father when I was 10, you know, with another woman that kind of made me really angry and confused, and and my grades plummeted because of that. And I went to an all-boys Catholic school with the Christian brothers, and, you know, in, in, uh, with my parents' full consent and cooperation, they tried to beat the grades back into me. That didn't work, and... You know, I don't really ever blame anything on my on my childhood. I'm not the first kid that, you know, um, dealt with adultery in the household, nor was I <laughs> the first boy that got beaten at a Christian Brothers Catholic school. Yeah. Um, but the way that I responded to it and the choices that I made, um, which were colored by those things, but still my choices, um, took me down the path uh, that I went down. And it's a sense of power a sense of safety, a sense of belonging, uh, camaraderie, a sense of purpose. These are sort of the, the things which draw people into um, extreme ideologies of any kind. It's the same reason why young people join ISIS. Yeah. You know, uh, if we look at the, the young men that were you know, arrested with the Brussels and the Paris attacks, they're not young Islamic scholars studying the Koran uh, they were street kids. They were all had criminal histories and drug histories, and yeah. so I think they were they were responding to 
different types of physical or emotional trauma in their life at the at the time. And I think it's important that we understand um, the root causes because that's you want to get someone out of it. You have to deal with those issues, not uh, you know sort of going in and challenging the ideology right off the bat. You know who would agree with you tremendously, and Tim would know this. Uh, we have a regular guest on our show once a month or thereabouts. His name is Mubin Sheikh. And he is a former jihadist, and uh, I know uh, Mubin well. Oh, you do? Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you guys are on the same page with uh, with this messaging, that's for sure. Um, Absolutely, it's the same. It's you know, I, I talk a lot about uh, toxic shame, right? And that's that's um, where we come out of events in our childhood and our youth where we feel less than, not good enough, not smart enough, not pretty enough, whatever, um, not lovable. And we go out into the world and we live our lives in reaction to that belief we have about ourselves. And one of the ways that we can compensate for not feeling uh, good enough or feeling less than is to adopt an ideology that tells us we're greater than. Yeah. Um, and I think that toxic shame piece, as opposed to healthy shame, which you know, like healthy emotions, even anger is healthy if it arises and passes away. It's permanent but when it's burning like an ember 24 7 then it's then it's a problem but that toxic shame is the root of addiction it's the root of violence it's the root of violent extremism it's at the root of suicide it's at the root of a whole spectrum of antisocial outcomes yeah yeah uh on the line with uh, anthony mclear otherwise known as tony former white supremacist a skinhead co-founder though these days of life after hate uh tony let me ask you i mean you're you're part of this Hanukkah show today, and so pretty much every guest is Jewish. D- did you hate the Jews, and which group did you hate the most, and, and why? Why did you... Okay, so many questions. Let's just start with one question. Which group did you hate the most? Uh, definitely the Jews. Definitely the Jews, and that's because... Um, well, you know, you read you read the, the literature. I don't know that there's a logical reason... Uh, you know how it started out, but there's there's so many narratives that they we believe that they um, they were like a hive mind, uh, you know, controlling the financial and entertainment centers of of the world, and you know that uh, the greatest threat to their existence was the Aryan man, and they were doing everything in their power to undermine the Aryan man to keep themselves kind of safe, and right. and uh, so it open door immigration. We didn't hate didn't so much hate the people they brought in, we hate the people that opened the door. Yeah, yeah, okay, so since it's our Hanukkah show and you're a guest on our Hanukkah show, let me just ask you a very strange question, because, <clears throat> you know, I don't know where you're at in life. I, I mean, I yeah. I understand the whole life after hate thing, we'll talk more about that in, in, in a little bit here. By the way, the website is lifeafterhate.org. But is there any part of you that's left over from your hate days that might listen to all these different Jewish people on our show and just kind of there's still some kind of leftover resin trigger kind of thing inside of you. No, but there is there is sort of residual. I call them phantom phantom thoughts. You know, there is as we learn stuff, it kind of becomes conditioned in our subconscious, and every now and again, it's it doesn't hold any substance. It doesn't generate really any reaction. And and I've got to a point in my life where I know I'm not my thoughts, and so I can observe them with, you know, with. Um, Curiosity, I can observe them with like, wow, that's a that's a weird thought. That's a weird one as they, <laughs> you know, come up and and go away, but they have no gravitas to them. So yeah. it's, it, I, I'm just able to observe them now. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's 
if it wasn't for uh, um, a Jewish man who had compassion for me, um, I never would I would never be here where I am today, mm. uh, living that life after hate. So the irony of that is not lost upon me. What is the and, and by the way, feel free to just say I I actually don't want to talk about it or I don't want to mention it. Uh, complete freedom to say that, and then we'll move on to the next uh, question. But no questions, taboo. Okay, what's the worst thing you you did? What's the thing that you just don't want your kids to ever know about? And will they ever know about it? I mean, if they hear this interview, they will. If you say it, but like you know, because we're left here with our imagination going. Really, he's a for, he's a former white supremacist. He's a skinhead. He's a manager of a racist rock band. I mean, this guy was a you know d bag of all d bags. So what did you do? Uh, I, I would have to say uh, the the event that I participated in that I carry the most shame about is when I was about 17 and uh, it was the, around the gay bashing of a, of a young gay man in Vancouver. Hmm. And we were drinking beer down by the aquatic center, which is where they used to go cruising. And, you know, I, was, I think we threw a beer can at a guy and called him a faggot and he yeah, told us to F off. And of course, there's your, there's your manufactured provocation. So we chased him into a construction site. When we got into the construction site, there was a, an area of construction that was almost like a crawl space, so maybe two, three feet high. And he ducked into that that crawl space and and uh, into the darkness where we couldn't see him or we couldn't couldn't get at him. And uh, like kids at the lake, you know, we picked up small stones and we skipped them uh, just like you would throw skipping stones mm-hmm. at the lake in the summer. Mm-hmm into the darkness and you hear clack, 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 clack. And every third or fourth stone, you'd hear this man howl in, in pain. And it's like, it was like a plain battleship. I was just thinking that's like human battleship. Jeez. And, and then, uh, and then we, you know, kind of got bored after five or 10 minutes and went off to go do something else. Just totally disconnected Hmm. from what we were, what we were doing. And we were all, sort of connected by a disconnection uh, as young young men. And, you know, and I can remember, you know, back to, you know, grade six and in the office of the, of the, uh, of the teacher that was beating me for not getting an A or a B and knowing what it's like to be somewhere where you know something bad's about to happen and there's nothing we can do about it. Mm-hmm. And knowing that feeling of absolute powerless where things are happening to you and you have no ability to stop it or leave or anything that absolute powerless. And I think, you know, to this day, I've never felt more powerless than I did in that office. And, you know, what troubles me is that part of human nature where we want to take that and put it onto somebody else. And that's really what we did. And I know exactly what that guy, you know, was feeling in his, in his mind. Mm. Um, Cause I've been through it myself and somehow justified it in my mind. It was okay to do it to, to transfer it on to somebody else. And that's probably the thing I did that disturbs me the most. So at at some point in your life, you become a father. And I'm assuming there's got to be, well, it kind of says it in your bio here, but even if I didn't read it in your bio, Tony, there's got to be some correlation between becoming a father and saying goodbye to your racism. Right. And, and it didn't happen overnight. In fact, a year, it was probably four or five years before 
uh, before that did happen. But what it did was begin a thawing process. You know, when I was in the delivery room and, and I was handed this uh, beautiful baby little girl and I had a son 15 months later, and, you know, she hasn't even opened her eyes yet. And, and I'm holding her and she opens her eyes. And I know that my face is the first picture her brain's going to take. And, hmm. and I connected to another human being for the first time since I, I couldn't remember remember when, even if it was only just a sliver of connection, because um, I was completely disconnected from my heart, operating totally in ego. And it began uh, a thawing process for me, and, you know, it's it's infectious loving a child. And what I think what uh, the amazing thing about children that can bring that best out of us is they're safe to love. And the reason we cut ourselves off from all our emotions and connection and stuff like that is because often it's too painful to stay connected and so it's it's a protection mechanism that we, we disconnect ourselves from the pain but we disconnect ourselves from everything else at the same time but it was just it was like a, a safe place like emotions on training wheels it was uh, they're not capable of ridicule or rejection or shaming at least not till they're teenagers and that's all they want to do for a couple of years but it, and it allowed me to open up and and to start to to feel again and it was a very powerful experience and uh, in my journey I've talked to hundreds of former violent extremists of all kinds and that's probably the number one story that comes up is is that and um, receiving compassion from someone who we don't feel we deserve it from particularly someone who we, we had once dehumanized yeah yeah. Yeah. And and children are full of compassion. That's they see the magnificent human being inside us when we can't see it ourselves. And when we're compassionate with a, with people, um, doesn't mean we don't have accountability and healthy boundaries and consequences and you know, have a healthy respect for especially with people that are capable of violence, but we still have compassion for them. When we do that, we hold up a mirror and allow them to see their humanity reflected back at them when they can't see it themselves, when they look into the mirror on their own. And I think that's the gift of, of compassion. When we start to recognize our own humanity, we can start to recognize it in others. Because I truly believe that the level to which we dehumanize other human beings through racism or other forms of dehumanization, uh, it's a mere reflection of how internally disconnected and dehumanized we are. And so at Life After Hate, what we work on is rehumanizing people. Because we don't come into the world as a neo-Nazi. Um, okay, we're on the line with um, Anthony McKaylor. Oh, gee, did I just I, I mispronounce your last name? Say it again. McAleer. McAleer. Why can't I do this? Tim, can you help me remember this? Biotic. I only had, I only had one teacher in elementary school got it right first time out. So. McAleer. McAleer. You know what that it is? It's because you, you just write yourself an A between the M's. I did. I wrote it down phonetically, and McAleer. I still screwed it up. Oh, wow. Um. Tony, people don't really change. So I have a hard time believing that you really changed. And if you really changed, how did you really change? And the only times I've ever heard real change stories have involved some, you know, I I became a Christian or I, or I became a Muslim or I don't know, some kind of God, faith, spiritual journey kind of thing. And even then I kind of still doubt and wonder that whether whether you know how long is the change going to last and is it just being suppressed or is it real is it authentic all that kind of stuff so there's about 37 comments for you what, what do you think about all that 
I'm going to answer your question in two parts. And one is, I'm, I'm, you're absolutely right. People don't change. And if I think back to who I was at four years old, or who was the essence of little Tony that came into the world, that, that uh, bright, sensitive, emotional, curious, stubborn, defiant, mischievous, that's, that's who I remember little Tony to be. I never stopped being that. But along the process, I put on masks and I armor and and different self-defense mechanisms to become the exact opposite of that. And when I was in that opposite of that, my life didn't function very well. And, you know, when I met the Jewish mentor, you know, he took me on this journey. And it was a lot of work to reclaim my authenticity, get in touch with who that little uh, Tony is. And so it was a process of dismantling the armor, taking off the masks and being uh, authentic and vulnerable. And it's it's a scary scary journey. I've probably put in between one-on-one and group workshops and stuff like that, probably a thousand hours. Hmm. Um, not, that, not that everybody has to do that, but I was also facilitating change in others. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not hard. The hard part is, is making the decision to do it because you have to face your pain and you have to face the pain you've caused others and you have to face people that you've hurt as part of a, a reconciliation mm-hmm. uh, process. There's no no magic pill. Somebody said, I woke up and I'm a changed man. I'd say, forget that. Uh, no way. You have to, you have to go through struggle. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a battle to face the things that you'd rather not have to face that you've done to people and things like that. And, um, there certainly was a, a spiritual component to it. Uh, I was raised Catholic, but I'm not <clears throat> not religious. And um, Gal Barron, who was the uh, my Jewish mentor, he he sort of taught the intersection between quantum physics, metaphysics, and spirituality and psychology. Sorry, and looking at you know who we are through those sort of three lenses. And you know when I discovered and experienced that as human beings, we're much more than these meat suits we're in. There's so much more to us than that. Um, it, it's not possible after that those experiences to think race matters. And if you believe that these human bodies are all we are and that's all there is to it, um, well, maybe, maybe that concepts of race make sense, but when you realize the magnificence of who we are above and beyond these material bodies, um, it really doesn't matter. But the, you know, we can't cling to notions about the protection of the body. I like to think we're um, spiritual beings having a human experience. And the analogy I like to use is is uh, like a car in the smash-up derby. You know, the, the car gets battered up, and the driver gets out and gets in another one. Um, but it's like people crying over the dents in the car. It doesn't make sense. Right. Wait, did I just hear you say you believe in reincarnation? Oh, uh, bumps. I guess. I mean, I, <clears throat> you know, I, I believe... Hold on. I said I said that in a way that almost made it sound like there was going to be judgment attached, that or ridicule. I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to sound like that. What I meant was that analogy you used of the smash-up derby and they get out and they get in another car or whatever, that sounds like reincarnation, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I believe, you know, if we get, go right down the rabbit hole and... 
um, you know, I think that we are, our souls are slivers of the divine, and for God to experience itself as, or herself, or itself as God, it has to experience itself as not God, and that's part of what this experience here in this world is, is to experience ourselves disconnected from the divine. I want to bring in my co-host slash engineer. Uh, we call him Tim the Tool. <laughs> Because of how many mistakes he makes every yes, show, my gifting every show. Although he brought in really amazing shortbread cookies yes, with what's the made. stuff in the middle? Toblerones. Toblerone inside shortbread. Um, Tony McAleer, what do you think about them? Their cookies. You'd, you'd have those, <laughs> wouldn't you? I'm trying to. I'm trying to cut down my carbs, but at Christmas time, absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm the same way, brother. <laughs> Tim. Yeah, Tony. I don't mean to bring it back to the the whole hate issue, but as as Canadians, we tend to prior, pride ourselves in, you know, being you know lack of prejudice or at least not as bad as our neighbors to the south. Now, um, I uh, my grade ten English teacher was Paul Fromm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that name. He was the leader. I knew Paul, Paul, I knew Paul from very well. Yes, he was my former English teacher. And most recently, the Charlottesville mess down in the States. Uh, I saw a video you know, before and after it happened. One of the before things is they were gathering before they were going to go, and they were saying, who's come from the farthest place? And someone yelled, you know, I'm from Canada. Um, wake up call. How, how bad is it up here? Well, if you look at so the Southern Poverty Law Center says there's 917 hate groups in the United States, and they have, you know, they have their definition of what a hate group is, and, and uh, but Canada, uh, Barbara Perry and uh, and Brian Scrivens have done uh, two academics that have done some research, and in Canada, they say there's about a hundred. Well, if you as a percentage of the population, that's about the same. Yeah, I was just going to say, 300 million people down there, 30 up million up here, that is uh, pretty even. Wow. That's yeah, sobering. So that, uh, you know, the, the how they communicate, you know, we <laughs> we may be more polite about it, but the the, the views and the, the ideology is just as um, radical. <laughs> just maybe so, not. We apologize no, after we say we hate someone. Yeah. yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm sorry we have to deport you, but yeah, uh, things just didn't work out, whereas it's more kind of in your face. But the sentiment is the same. It's, And I think there's, you know, I think we're in a vastly changing changing world, and, and uh, human beings don't like change at the best of times. So, yeah. you know, I think people are afraid. And looking for answers, and I think uh, I think it, what happened in the election, you know, and, and talk about populism, because this is not just a, a U.S. phenomenon. This is sweeping Europe as well, and all of the establishment parties, you know, are getting knocked out, you know, from uh, Brexit with UKIP to even Macron and stuff like that, and and not that he's racist, but he's non-establishment. There's a a wave of populism, and, and I think populism is an essential part to democracy. And, and when I see the rise of populism, I think it's like the engine light going on in your car. It's telling you that there's something systemically wrong, and that you, you need to you need to address it. And I think, you know, the the uh, way that globalism has been delivered it didn't raise all boats like it promised and in fact it sunk a few boats and i think there are people you know whether whether it's right or wrong 
thinking that they were left behind, they feel left behind. And we have to, um, you have to deal with people's feelings. It doesn't matter whether they're true, but that's what they feel. And that's what you have to sort of um, deal with. And I think, you know, the people had a choice. I think populism never has the right question, has the right answer, but it certainly asks the right question often enough. And I think when people had the choice between um, being told they're stupid for asking the question and someone who, given, who offered them um, the, the wrong answer, but it resonated with them, I think that's where, uh, that's where things went, uh, went sideways. And right. I, said, I said three years ago, uh, that I feared the coming wave of Islamophobia that was happening, and the only thing North America was missing to the underlying sentiment, which hadn't been given voice yet, was a charismatic leader with a voice. And that's these undercurrents can be harnessed in, uh, overnight oh. and become something quite dangerous and quite powerful. Chatting with uh, Anthony McAleer, he is a former white supremacist and skinhead, and he's also the co-founder of Life After Hate. Let me uh, finish this conversation uh, with with this, Tony. Okay, there's a guy, someone says to you, you know, there's a group over here, and this guy's part of a group, or this, my son is part of this group, and he's just such a, I mean, he's a hater. There's no other way to say it, just a complete hater. And uh, he's into this whole thing, and he's a white supremacist, and skinhead, neo-Nazi, I don't know, whatever. You, he listens to uh, Odin's Law, <laughs> whatever the thing is here. Like, you're not going to go up to him and go, hey, buddy, uh, you know, you need to be nicer. It's not going to work. You're not going to go up to him and go, even you, you're not, I don't think, can go up to someone who is so ingrained in this mentality and say, hey, I used to be like this, and, and now I'm not. It, let's go talk. Does that, I mean, that doesn't work, right? Well, it actually does. Really? Yeah. And I'm not saying that, you know, these people are, you have to understand that the, these people have a capacity for violence that, that is, uh, you have to be very wary. I'm not suggesting for a second any, anyone go up and approach someone that way or, you know, hug a Nazi or anything like that. Hug a um, Nazi. <laughs> Sounds like a good day. Should we pick a date for that? It's hug a Nazi day. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> But but I think you know they they can be open to those those kind of conversations and and you know ask them how's how's your life working out for you because I know in that space it takes so much energy to be that angry and hateful all the time and when you surround yourself with people like that um, your life isn't going to work well and you know because at the at the very core of it. You know, there's a very damaged relationship with the person self. All of their other relationships are going to suffer because of that. They're not capable of having healthy relationships. So I know that their life isn't going to be working out for them. And, and so what we start with is, um, you know, we'll try and trigger a bit of disillusionment, get them to question where they're at. Um, we don't touch the ideology up front because the ideology at this point and identity are intertwined. We need to separate the identity from the ideology before we can we can tackle it. But um, you know, the, I look at these people as they've lost their they've lost their way. They found themselves in a very dark place, and often um, they're you know they're depressed and things aren't going well. And and they're open to those conversations. 
Well, that's what, that's what we do. I mean, we've probably got helped 100 or 200 um, people who society has written off. But, you know, that human being is still inside. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a very small amount where the connection's permanently broken, but that human being is still inside, and we help them find their humanity and rejoin society in a healthy way. Um. We we just don't have enough time to get into this last question with any depth. I said the last question was going to be the last question, but I want this to be the last question. What role did religion play in your racism? Um, well, it didn't. It didn't sort of so much play into the ideology, but my um, the role of religion in my school and the way that was implemented certainly fueled the fire of of anger, mistrust in authority and sure. And set the set helped set the the groundwork uh and, and create the the vulnerabilities that uh put me in a place where those choices that I made made sense. Yeah. To me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Uh Tony McAleer. Uh, that's who we've been chatting with. Here's a website you need to go to to check out lifeafterhate.org. Lifeafterhate.org very interesting stuff and a perfect guest for this Hanukkah show. So good to have you on today's show, Tony. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks. And that's there it. Is hope. Yeah. And I think that's the message at Christmas time to all my Jewish friends and anyone out, out there listening. It, in this time where it seems hopeless, yeah. it's not. There is hope. Beautiful. Beautiful. Really well said. Tony, Merry Christmas, buddy. Thank you. Bye-bye.